0: If you would, turn to Jonah. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 1. Brother Hampton used to always say, it's the clean pages of your Bible. One of the minor prophets, Jonah. So I think everybody's about there. Chapter 1, at least through verse 16. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me but Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken and then the mariner's were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. And then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for what cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and what people are, are you from? And he said to them, Well, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. And then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them, And then said they unto him, What shall we do unto you, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, has done it as it pleased you. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows." So, you know, there's certain names in the Bible that we associate with certain things. So like whenever you say Adam and, the first thing that comes to your mind is Eve, right? Or David and Goliath, Noah and the Ark, and generally it's Jonah and the whale or the big fish. But really, that is not the main idea or the, the main theme in Jonah because God's justice and compassion is the main theme yet most people if you talk to them they want to talk about well is it possible for a person to actually live inside of a huge whale for three days and so because of the unlikelihood of that event and a lot of the that's not the only miraculous thing that takes place in this story by the way there's many things that take place but a lot of commentaries that you'll read they want to say well no this probably wasn't a real story it doesn't have to be it's just an allegory or a parable a story that just makes a point that's based on facts that's what a lot of the commentaries will say But listen, we go to the new testament and our lord jesus takes all the fiction out of the story because he says this but as jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and he went on to say that the men of nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and he said, "And behold, a greater than Jonah is here." So, despite the commentaries, Jonah is not Veggie Tales. <laughs> and I'm not going to sing that song because, anyways. But I'll tell you what Jonah is. It's a story of God's redeeming love, His extraordinary patience, and His relentless pursuit of people to save them. That's what this story is about. And so a lot of times people think, well, God, I wonder, does he care about me? And you wonder, does he care about me, just an individual? And here's what we see here. He cares more about Jonah, the prophet, than he does the work that he wants him to do. He could have got somebody else, but he didn't give up on him. So if he didn't care about individuals, he could have ditched Jonah. He could have ditched these sailors, as we'll see, and he could have found someone else that was willing. But instead, through circumstances, he sovereignly saves both of them, because God does care about us, He does care about p- people, so you know Jonah outside of this book that 's written by his name he 's mentioned only one other place in scripture it 's in second kings fourteen twenty five and you don 't have to turn to there, but we do learn something about Jonah in the circumstances of his prophecy coming to him by reading that, and what we learn is first he 's from northern israel he 's from about the same area Jesus was from, the area of Galilee. And here's another thing. He prophesied during the time of Jeroboam II. And even though he was a wicked king, according to the prophecy of Jonah, he says God is going to bless Israel, which he did. And he's going to expand her borders, which he did, back to the borders that were the borders of David and Solomon when they reigned. And we also know the way it's worded when it talks about him there, that he was a well-respected prophet in Israel at the time. So here sits Jonah, coming into this story. He's got a successful ministry, well thought of by the people. And all of a sudden, his comfort zone is invaded by God. This comfort zone he has. So look back again at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me and this brings me to my first point what we're going to see here is god is sovereign and he expects to be obeyed so Jonah's sitting back enjoying his popularity and prosperity and blessed life as a prophet and suddenly God breaks into all of his hopes and dreams and plans and gives him a command arise get up and go to Nineveh that great city and cry against it and listen Jonah had to be thinking this he's like what I mean, maybe my spiritual radio is a little bit out of tune. I'm on the wrong frequency here. I don't know if I heard that right. Because up to that time, no prophet in Israel had ever been called to go to a foreign country. None of them. They all did their prophecy and prophesying in Israel. And not only that, he had to be thinking, God, you've changed my prosperity message into a message of judgment. And on top of that, why would I want to go to Nineveh? they're the most cruel and vicious people on the earth which they were you sit there and talk about the way they treated the nations that they conquered it's barbaric and that's where they were, he's like, I don't want to go there, I don't want to put my life on the line and preach a message of repentance to those heathens, That's had to be what he's thinking they hate us Jews, they're gonna do us in and I don't want them to repent and receive mercy I want them judged, that had to be what he was thinking but whatever he was thinking we know his answer to God by his actions don't we and what was his answer God tells him to do something and he says what no now I'm telling you that is also unprecedented so you've got Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and God calls them and they may raise some questions and they may talk about I'm inadequate I just don't feel like I can do that that's one thing isn't it but none of them refuse to go just to flat out refuse God. If you hadn't read this a hundred times and seen Veggie Tales and all that, you would expect the next thing you know that when the word of the Lord came and tells a prophet to do something, the next thing you would expect to hear is the prophet goes, right? And instead we hear just the opposite of that. But what we need to see here is God didn't ask Jonah's permission. He didn't ask Jonah what he thinks. He didn't give him the right to obey or not to obey because God is sovereign, the sovereign Lord of the universe and expects his prophet to obey him without an explanation. He doesn't give him an explanation. It's a very simple command. Arise, go to Nineveh, and cry against that town. So don't we exercise at times that sovereign right over our own children? Right, you tell him, you say, hey, at my house, my little boy likes to sleep everywhere but his own bed but at times it's like you're gonna sleep in your bed you're gonna go there ten o'clock and you're not gonna make any noise and the kid wants to say but why and you say because that's the way I told you it's gonna be and that's the end of the conversation and the kid says no I'm not gonna do it well how do you react to that response from your child is that when you pull the gun out of the drawer and blow them away and it's like look it's immediate response or it's all over son Oh, obviously we don't do that like Scott was talking about earlier. What What do you do? You get your ways and means committee out, right, that establishes who is sovereign. That's what happens to our friend Jonah here, right? But before we criticize poor old Jonah too quickly, let's think about what God is asking him to do. So no small thing. He's saying, I want you to go to this foreign country that is hostile. I mean, they're just hostile people. They're, not, they're so wicked he's ready to destroy the place. They can't be a nice group of people to live. right? And they're hostile to Israel. And he says, I want you to speak to this evil people about their sins. And so what is the task God calls him to? He says, I want you to call these sinners to repentance, to warn them that the judgment of god is coming it's coming their way if they don't change and that's his commission that is not an easy one but listen don't we have the same commission from the lord to leave our comfort zone isn't that what we have to leave our comfort zone and go into what may appear to be in america we don't have too many what i would call hostile environments to preach the gospel but there are all over the world but that's what we're called to do go into a hostile environment so to speak And warn sinners of the judgment to come. And how many times do we hear the voice of the Lord telling us to share the gospel and we say, maybe we do it in a nice way, I'm not going to do it. Because we don't. We show by our actions. This person likes me, and I value that. This person liking me more than I value obeying the Lord. So He wants you to speak at work. At school, when you maybe have lunch with your neighbor, minister to prisoners, join an outreach group. However, there's a lot of opportunities we have to share the gospel as we go through this life, right? And we hear him say, arise, go to Joe, that great sinner, and cry against him, warn him. Just like that's what he told Jonah. We have the same commission, don't we? Isn't that what the Lord said? Go ye therefore. That's to all of us. All Christians, go ye therefore and teach all nations to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I have a concern for the lost? I've preached these type of messages here many times. I know the statistics are honestly the statistics are that I just heard yesterday ninety percent of people that come to church, get saved at church, that go to church and die in church, ninety percent of them never share the gospel with anybody. And that's not saying the Lord bless me with this. That's not sharing the gospel. It's warning sinners of the judgment to come and showing them that God has provided a way that they can be saved. They don't have to be judged. That's sharing the gospel in whatever form you do that but do we have a concern for the lost this man named Perlaska he saved more Jews than Schindler did he was an Italian and he's on a business trip to Budapest to buy meat for the Italian army that was his mission but when he gets there he saw and experienced firsthand what the Jews were going through, how they were treated, how they're being herded off to be massacred, how many of them were just being shot right there on the spot in Budapest. And so he used that money that was meant to buy beef, and instead he says, I'm going to use it to buy human lives. He wasn't worried about his job anymore. He sees all these Jewish people just being slaughtered and sent away to be slaughtered, and his heart went out to him. He saw their plight and so he did everything in his power constantly bribing officials put his own life at risk many times had a knife to his throat for what he was doing he was getting nothing out of this and they even asked him why do you risk your lives to save these jews and he says because it's my duty and he didn't mean like he was reluctantly doing it he's saying this is my duty as a man is what he said he knew those jews could not help themselves and he had the means to help them So what was his motivation? Simple human compassion. So what is our motivation to share the gospel? The plight of sinners. We see the judgment that is to come. Do we really understand? Do we really believe that? That we see this judgment that is to come? And the other motivation should be the love of God, the compassion of God. Simple human compassion. Ezekiel 18, here is God's heart. God says... Have I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. And so God says he has no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. None. None that the wicked should die, and that is any wicked. But do we always feel that way? so for instance what about these so-called radical Muslim extremists because this is not an exaggeration they would be the Ninevites of our day they would be it'd be equivalent to that so the question I would say is do you want to see them saved or destroyed that's the question we have to ask I'm telling you ISIS is as cruel as the Assyrians were Maybe, and Jonah wouldn't want to go to ISIS either to go minister to that group of people there, if God sent him, so you're sitting out there, you're thinking, man, I've been watching Fox News. You're crazy, preacher, because I'm voting for Donald Trump, and he wants to destroy all of ISIS, and he does. But I'll tell you, I think as Christians, we need to leave judgment in the hands of God, right? <laughs> because one of these ISIS members that we want to see dead may be the next Apostle Paul. Now you're looking at me like I don't believe that. These people are all wicked to the core. Well, let me tell you, now, that is a hypothetical situation. I don't know. I'm sure ISIS people have been saved because I'll tell you what I do know for a fact. So Yasser Arafat, some of you people under 30 might not know who he was, but he was head of the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, back through the 70s, 80s. He's a dead man now. But he was the first one, and he was dead set on killing every Jew he could. And so there was a man. He was Arafat's chauffeur but he was also a sniper who was dedicated to killing as many Jews as he could that was his business and this Palestinian eventually came over to America and started a restaurant here and so a Christian frequented that restaurant went there many times and he witnessed to that man every chance he had guess what he gets converted this Palestinian Jew killer gets converted And why? Because he said, this man that came to me was different. Treated me nice. Shared the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it opened his eyes. And yet, here is a man that we would consider a terrorist. Killing God's chosen people. And yet, God decided to have mercy on him. And I heard his testimony. Not here. Not in a book. Lisa and I were over in Israel in Jericho in his restaurant. Hearing him share this talking about how he puts his life on the line now he's in danger his own family wants to kill him but he is there to spread the gospel to palestinians and so that's the way god works but at the time this guy's a sniper and killing jews and arafat's right-hand man most people would have said this man just deserves to die but yet god chose him to have mercy on him Right? So God may interrupt our lives like Jonah, get us out of our comfort zones to share the gospel with people that we would rather not. Because there's a lot of hardcore people that outwardly they seem like somebody, man, why would you want to even talk to those people? And you don't know what's going on inside of them. You don't know how God could reach them. That really is the case. So he does that, doesn't he? He'll tell us, you need to go share. That's what Jonah's about. But isn't there other ways that God comes and brings a word into our comfort zone, interrupts our lives? You all know, it's probably, I can bring examples. There could be a hundred different ways he does that. Through his word, he comes in and says, wait a minute. You need to do this. And you're like, I don't want to. He says, arise and pray. You need to put more of a priority on prayer in your life. And what is our reaction? What do we do? Or he says, hey, you need to forgive somebody because you know in your heart that you resent and even hate that brother or sister that's in church. he says, you need to get out of your comfort zone and make things right. Arise. The word of the Lord came to whoever. Arise. You need to go and make things right with them. And sometimes we say, I'm not going to. I don't want to. Or fellowship. God would say, you can't avoid all fellowship we have in this church. It's a body. We need you around. Sometimes, at least when we have events going on, amen? And people are like, I'm just not going to do that. But it says to forsake not the fellowship of one another, right? Sometimes we just say, I refuse to obey. And here's, when you're not doing well, and that happens when you're not doing well spiritually, and you know you're not, what's the avenue that many people take? Well, what did Jonah do? Look down in verse 3. Jonah doesn't want to do what God says. It says, So Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Well, let me ask you this. What does it mean? What is he talking about here when he says to flee from the presence of the Lord? You think Jonah really thought that he gets on this ship somehow, he's going to be able to hide from God? I don't think so. Jonah would have known his Bible as a prophet. He would have known that Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from thy spirit, or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. He knew he ultimately couldn't get away from God's presence in that sense. He's not stupid. Let's give him that much credit. But you know what it means? He's saying he's fleeing from the place where God spoke to him. That's what he's fleeing. You know, Elijah stands before Ahab, before King Ahab, and... 1 Kings 17, 1, and he says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. And then he gives this word of judgment unto Ahab about no water or rain is going to come or do for three years. He's saying, I stand before him in a certain place here, and God gives me a word, and I'm giving that to you, King Ahab. So what's Jonah doing here? He's fleeing from his responsibilities as a prophet. That's what he's doing here. Fleeing God's call, he figures if I can just get far enough away from God, God will use someone else, and I could start me a new life. Because I'm a prophet in Israel, that's what I am. I got to get away from that. Got to get away from the presence of the Lord. Get over here, start me a new life. Nobody'll know who I am. That's what he's saying. As one man said, he's asserting his will against the will of God. That's what Jonah's doing here. So. God had told Jonah to arise, and you go one place, and Jonah arose and went the complete opposite direction, as far as he could have got away, literally. He went as far west, Tarshish. That was as far west as you could go. He's doing exactly the opposite of what God asked him to do. And let me ask you, we've got to think again. So this is Jonah the prophet. This is how he speaks to us. So unlike other prophets, most of the prophets you read, they're filled with prophecies, aren't they? And saints, what's Jonah filled with? Hardly any prophecy, is it? What is Jonah? It's a story, isn't it? It's prophetic narrative. So how does God speak to us and to Israel at that time? He's not speaking through the prophecy per se, it's Jonah's life, this story that's going on here. So that's how we're being spoken to, right? So we have to think here, Jonah's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And how many times when we're involved in sin and don't want to obey, we flee. We flee from the presence of the Lord, where God speaks to us. We flee from reading His Word. We avoid spiritual conversations. I've had that happen. People that I knew weren't doing well, you try to bring up something spiritual, and man, they get you off that. They have their way of letting you know, I don't want to talk about spiritual things. I'll talk about birds, weather, sports, all you want. Something inside says, okay, well that's not always the case, but sometimes that happens enough times that there's just something not quite right here with that. And that's how people flee the Lord or flee coming to church and hearing preaching or spending time in prayer. Because God will speak to you there, won't he? And if you're in sin, that'll keep you off your knees, as they've said a lot of times. Flee in the presence of the Lord where he speaks. And when you do that, when you're fleeing, you're just not gonna slow down and let God speak to you. You just want to get away. Jonah found him a ship, didn't he? And you could always find a ship. There's always a ship ready to take you away from obeying God. Jonah's like, Look here, I found a ship going where I want to go. I can afford the fare. There's room for me. I got the last seat. Must be God. That had to be what he was thinking, right? He's leading me now. He's not leading me to Nineveh. I believe God's leading me now to Tarshish. Well, I know God gave me this word go to Nineveh. But man, he really seems to be blessing what I'm doing. Everything's just falling right in place, right? It feels right. That's dangerous, right? Because when we disobey the clear, written Word of God for us, no other circumstances or feelings at that point can be relied on. So when you disobey the written Word, your conscience even is no longer a reliable guide because it can be seared. So what has to be our first and foremost compass for what we do, the direction we take, and the way we live our lives. It's got to be His Word. Nothing trumps that. If what you want to do is contrary to this, you need to set it aside. That's got to be number one. So, Jonah's problem, what was his problem? Was it that he didn't understand the command of the Lord? That wasn't it. So, his problem wasn't intellectual, was it? His problem was what? It was right in here, it was with his heart. Jonah had a spiritual problem because, you know, you read that command, it is pretty clear, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. And so, to prove a point, that's why I had you all stand up and turn around and face the back wall. Nobody looked confused. Everybody stood up, just like I said, and I said, turn around and face, everybody did it, praise the Lord, right? Right? There was nothing in you to resist that, was it? I mean, you might have thought this guy's kind of weird, but I'll do it, right? It wasn't quite the same. But here's the difference, all right? So God commands you to forgive your brother and sister and be reconciled. That's not hard to understand, is it? It's really not. But there's something in us that resists that. It's called pride and resentment. And that's what causes us to not obey the simple commands of the Lord. Look, the command for Adam and Eve, it couldn't have been any simpler, right? Here's this tree, here's this fruit, don't eat it, and everything will be fine. I mean, that is not hard, was it? And so when did things get complicated? The devil moves in, their pride starts to become a factor, right? And all of a sudden, they get confused about this clear command because of that, and they eat the fruit, and next thing you know, they are fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Generally, when people are in sin or disobedience, it's not because we don't understand what we should do. It's not that hard. The Bible is not rocket science in that sense. It's because there's something in us that doesn't want to do it. Right? Here's what I want us to think about. Well, he comes into our comfort zones, and he will all the time. Our comfortable way of living. We need to be willing to obey no matter what the cost is. So, we have another example, unlike Jonah, in Abraham. So, in some ways, he was like him because Abraham was a blessed man, right? He believed God for Isaac. He's enjoying a prosperous life, a new son, favor in the eyes of men. You know why? Everybody had to think this guy's something else because who has a baby at age 100? He had the respect of every man that knew him. How'd you manage that at 100? So he's old and blessed, and I'm sure he's ready to enjoy his retirement at hundred years old his remaining days. And what happens to Abraham? All of a sudden, like with Jonah, he's sitting there enjoying everything, probably kicked back in his tent, drinking Israeli lemonade, and all of a sudden here comes a word at hundred years old. God broke in a word that shook his life up, a hard-to-obey word like with Jonah. And what was the word that came to Abraham? take now thy son, thine only son Isaac whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of." Now that would have been hard to obey because not only had he trusted God to have this son all those years and seen God manifest that, but you think about anybody that has kids, you're going to take your own child, put them on an altar, And they're looking right in your eye. It says he had that knife raised, and you're going to plunge that right into their heart. You talk about a hard thing to do. Going to preach a witness to sinners, give me that any day compared to you got to do something to your own child like that. That had to be extremely difficult, obviously. Abraham had to be like, man, haven't I gone through enough, Lord? You take me from my hometown, make me come here, I'm subjected to all these Philistines, right? Then then you ask me to believe for a baby when I'm 75 and it takes 25 years for that to happen. And now, when I ought to be able to kick back, here I gotta take my son and put him on an altar and offer him like a sacrifice. Greatest trial of all time, I would say. I think that's why he's called the father of the faith. Yet, what do we see with Abraham? He obeyed, didn't he? He obeyed. Believe in what? It says if you look at Hebrews 11, he obeyed because he says he believed that God was able to raise that boy from the dead. Wasn't going to leave him there dead on that altar. Somehow he was going to raise him from the dead. And listen, here's the point. That's the kind of heart we all need. Is it not? A heart that gives unquestioning, like Abraham did, obedience to God's word. Knowing if we do that, Jonah's like, I don't like the consequences of obeying God. I don't like that. But Abraham says, I don't like it either, but I believe God will make all things right in the end. And that's what we have to do. He comes in and invades our personal space, asks us to do something that we're like, I don't like that. I don't even like what the results might be. But we have to trust that somehow if we obey the Lord, His clear commands and words, He'll make everything right in the end, won't He? But the primary reason that we need to ask to have a heart like that is not because of Abraham. It's because that's the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. So consider this, Jonah, God asked him to leave the comfort success he had as a prophet and the people he loved to go to Nineveh, a city of great wickedness. And Jonah's answer was, no, wasn't it? Contrast that with Jesus. God asked him to lay aside the pure joy and comfort of heaven, fellowship with God Almighty, and come into a world that he knew would hate him and eventually kill him. And what was his answer? yes and so that's why in Philippians 2 we're told this by Paul let this mind be in you that's me and you which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. he was willing to let that go that's what love is I'm willing to let all this comfort or whatever go for the sake of obeying the will of God he said, being in equality with God was not a thing to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God made it all right. It says, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So we sing a song in here fairly regularly. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus, right? All I ask is to be like Him. All through life's journey from earth to glory, all I ask is to be like Him. Well, man, that could be a costly song to sing, couldn't it? It really could be. So there's this movie that's coming out. It's going to be shown Tuesday, August 30th in theaters and it's this story of this couple named Nick and Ruth Ripkin. So we're saying it can be costly. They went over to Somalia as missionaries and he said it was like leaving the New Testament and flying into the Old Testament, coming into that culture. He said it was like flying into hell. And they get there and they're not having much success the way I understand it and When they leave there, there are very few converts, but all kinds of persecution, and they're like, is this even worth it? Nobody even seems receptive to the gospel. They lost a son. And so he's like, I've got to find out. The question is, is Jesus worth it? And so the movie is going to be about, they go around the world, and they go into deeply persecuted areas in this world. They interview 600 people living in these persecuted areas in 60 countries, asking them is Jesus worth it and after interviewing those people the overwhelming response was from these people Jesus is worth it worth my life the life of my spouse and the lives of our children and that's what they're giving up over there so I'm not saying that to make us feel guilty that we're not being persecuted but to encourage us that we just need to be faithful where we are when God speaks to us, we make the changes. We go speak to the people He wants us to. We're not living for ourselves anymore. That's what Christianity is, right? We're living for Him, and so we just need to all examine our hearts whether we're willing to obey the Lord in the hard things He asks. And so here's the thing: Jonah tells God, "No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go to Nineveh." And let me ask you: Does that leave God paralyzed? Jonah tells him, "No." Does that leave him paralyzed? Is he like an indulgent parent? I've seen that happen, you know, ask the kid to do something just defiantly, no. And then the pleading starts. Does God do that? Is he like that? Please, honey, I just really need you to do this. I want you to do it bad. No, you know what? Here's the way the Lord is. Jonah tells him no, and God starts throwing things. I'm saying literally, and you may not, you're like questioning me again. Don't question me now. Not today. Because let me tell you why I'm saying that. Look at verse 4. But he flees from the presence of the Lord, and it says in verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. You know that word sent? It literally means to hurl, to hurl something. So it's used, the exact same word is used down in verse 5 when it talks about the mariners middle of verse five there it says they cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea that cast forth is the same word for sent it means they hurled this stuff they're trying to lighten that ship and they're tossing stuff off that ship as quick as they can they're hurling it off that is what the word means and the same word is used in verse 12 when Jonah tells the sailors he said unto them take me up and that's the word sent cast me forth into the sea he's saying pick me up and hurl me into the sea What we have here, Jonah says, I'm not going to go. God doesn't just sit back and say, oh, that's okay. Just do what you want to do. No, it's like he picks us up and says, all right, buddy, here it comes. And he hurls that wind, that tempest on the sea, a violent storm. Comes from his hand in heaven. It is no accident that this storm is happening. And the sailors even know that. They're like, this is no ordinary storm. These guys are hardened sailors, Phoenician sailors. That was their business. They've been in storms before. They're like, there's something up with this one. It's too violent to just be some normal storm that comes our way. And here's the thing. Yahweh, the Lord, he is not going to just be lightly brushed aside by Jonah. He's not going to lightly just be told, no, I'm not going to do what you want to do. It's coming. He's in control. And he sends a tremendous storm. It says in the Bible, a mighty tempest. So powerful, it's gonna break this ship up. And these guys know it, these sailors know it. Let me ask you, have you ever had that in your life? I have. For all of a sudden, man, a violent storm comes your way, and it seems like it's gonna break you in pieces. Your whole life's going down. That's what it seems like, right? And so we have a choice when that happens, though. We can either believe God has sent that for some reason, or it just happens by chance. Either God is sovereign and in control of all things, or he's not. And the Bible teaches that he is. Down to a sparrow fallen by a tree. Because if things like that, what it tells us there, that where that wind came from, now they wouldn't have seen that. They would have just seen this storm coming. But if we're going to say that we're just left to chance, then that means God is at the mercy of other powers if he's not in control of everything that happens. And listen, that is a hindrance to faith we have to believe and know that God is in control of all things and he can change all things otherwise we're at the mercy of trials that come our way they may or may not change but if God is sovereign and in control he can change the worst situation immediately he can but I do want to give a word of caution here not all storms that come in our lives are the result of disobedience are they? they're not. Jonah's was but there's another storm everybody's familiar with that didn't come as a result of disobedience. And that's in Mark chapter 4, isn't it? Jesus told those disciples, let's all get in this boat and we're going to go to the other side. Well, they're doing exactly what he told them to do. And what happens when they're in the middle of that lake? Here comes a storm. So all storms that come in your life are not because of disobedience. See, we can't judge somebody. We're not to judge each other. Well, look at that. He's obviously said no to God because look, he just lost his job, his house, and his, his car's wrecked we don't know that that's not for us to decide but this storm here that happens is so severe that these like i said these seasoned sailors they are panicked and terror stricken and they're crying out to their gods and they're hurling stuff over the side of the ship and you don't do that when it's your business to get things from one port to another you don't do that unless it's a last resort right but that's what's going but you contrast that here's all this activity this storm they're throwing stuff over the side they're crying out to their gods they're doing all that things contrast that with what's going on below deck and look what it says at the last part of verse 5 it says all this is going on but Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep so the one who should have been terrified is doing what he's down below deck it says in a deep sleep The captain goes down there and he finds Jonah asleep, and he just can't believe his eyes. And he says, what meanest thou, O sleeper, is what it says in King James. And that would be like what we say to our teenagers, you know, what are you doing sleeping? It's noon, (laughs) right? What are you doing asleep? That's what he's saying. And Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare when he gets woken up by this captain because he hears the same words that captain says that God had said to him, arise. Get up and call upon thy God. And what did he? He's hearing the echo of the Lord saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, and he's thinking, Man, I didn't do that. And now this guy's calling me arise and call upon my God. And this captain's ordering Jonah to call upon his God, and he realizes that Jonah is in no position to call upon his God. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and Jonah can't pray. So here's the irony of this situation that we see here in the Bible. The ones whose prayers are powerless, are all frantically calling on their gods, getting nowhere. And the one who knows the God that can help is silent. He can't pray. In fact, he is asleep down below. That's the irony of this story. So Jonah, think about this, the prophet of God the only true God surrounded by unbelievers who need to know the Lord but he's unable to help them because he's in rebellion and he's asleep now, I'm saying Jonah's speaking to the church today isn't he? Paul says this in Ephesians 5 he says wherefore he saith awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light awake Get out of your stupor, get out of your slumber, and God will give you light and life and joy. And so, hey, when these opportunities come our way, you know, a brother just told me he's, he's involved in this construction now, and he's saying, man, this is a field of harvest, all these heathens that I have to deal with now, rougher than I ever remembered them being. I'm saying, what an opportunity. Arise and go. That's how we have to look at things instead of like, do I have to? we got to look at it like an opportunity to do. These things to witness, to share. That captain wakes him up, and Jonah walks back up on deck with that captain, only to hear all of a sudden he's hearing the sailors are deciding that they're going to cast lots to find out who this guilty party is that has brought this disaster on them. And Jonah, when he hears that, he had to be like, "Mm -hmm." yeah, uh oh, he knows what's coming, right? Because he knows he is going to be found out. He had to be like Achan. And when they start casting lots over to Israel and they're narrowing it down to Achan, he had to be just like like I am right now, sweating. It's getting closer. I mean, it's narrowing down. That light is coming right down on me. And that's what's happening here with Jonah. Because he would have known Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 33, that says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And the lot fell on Jonah. And God exposed his sin, didn't he? It was exposed. He has a way of doing that. (laughs) And so, once the sailors know that Jonah is the guilty party, they pepper him with all these questions. They want to know who is your God? Why did you come on this ship? What is your country? Who are your people? That's what they're trying to find out. Who is his God? Because back then, whatever nation you belong to, there was a God attached to that that you worship and prayed to. And they're wanting to find out who that is so they can ask for help. And so, down in verse 9, Jonah tells them his nationality. He's sending to them, "I am and Hebrew." and he tells them who his God is. He says, "I fear," and that word for fear, because he couldn't have feared him too much because he's running from him, but that word couldn't be used for worship, and I fear or worship the God of heaven, which has made the sea and the dry land. And all of a sudden with these guys, the storm makes sense. Ah they're dealing with the God who made the seas the one whom the psalmist says commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves thereof And that when they hear that and they realize what's happening they go from fear to sheer terror that is what happens and they call out why have you done this or it would be better to say you know how could you do such a thing how could you do that they're asking you're fleeing from the presence of the God that made the seas are you crazy That's what they're asking Him. They're like, well, He's your God. Tell us what we got to do. What do we need to do to you to make this sea calm again? And the whole time all this is going on, I mean, if you could have a movie of it, it'd be better. The storm just keeps increasingly getting greater. It's not calming down any. And these guys are getting desperate. And so in verse 12, Jonah tells him, He says, Well, you just take, pick me up and you hurl me into the sea and it will be calm. And guess what he's doing now? Jonah's back to, he's speaking like a prophet. That's a prophetic word coming from him, a word from God. Obey it and you'll live. Now, here the men are, they're like, oh, I don't want to accept that word. I don't want to do that. We don't want to throw you over. So they try to row and they row as hard as they can against that wind and they get absolutely nowhere. The storm is way. Too much and way too strong for them to row up against it. So they realize, hey, this is worthless. Trying to row against this storm ain't going to get us anywhere. They don't want the blood of Jonah to be on their heads, innocent blood. So they pray for God to forgive them, and then they do what Jonah says. They see no other way out of it. They pick him up, and they hurl him into the sea. And just as Jonah prophesied, the raging of the sea stops immediately, and it becomes calm. And so what we have here, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because that's how God does things, especially in the Old Testament. He illustrates truth through stories. So the storm of God's judgment is strong and powerful, is it not? And we know when God awakens a sinner, they see that day of judgment. And there's this overwhelming sense that this is coming, it's overpowering. And you start knowing, I need some help. That's at least that's what happened with me against God's wrath and he offers us he says well here's a sacrifice like Jonah said and we think no I don't want that I wanna go that. I wanna to try to work this out myself and so we start doing all our good works more praying more reading more helping old ladies across the street all our efforts at religion we realize man this is gonna do nothing to calm the storm of judgment because it's not giving me any real peace that's what happens and finally, in desperation, just like these men, we'll accept God's word. Realize our own religion and our good works are worthless. We have to see that. Our works are worthless, and we have got to just accept God's sacrifice and quit sweating and rowing. So, Jonah hadn't done the sailors any harm, had he? And he offered his life. He said, You all just hurl me into that sea, and it'll be calm. And guess what? the Lord Jesus Christ hadn't done us any wrong either had he hadn't sinned at all Jonah didn't just jump into the ocean did he and Jesus didn't just commit suicide did he (laughs) he willingly laid down his life but he didn't kill himself we were the ones all of us here just like they had to hurl Jonah overboard we were the ones that hurled Jesus on that cross because of our sins we're the ones that nailed him on that cross it was our sins that put him there. And the difference between Jesus and Jonah, Jonah was punished by God for his sin. That's what's going on. there. this chastisement. But Jesus, our Lord, was nailed to the cross, not for his sins, but for ours. Hurled into the stormy sea of God's judgment on our behalf. Just as the waves were about to break over us, just like that ship, break up that ship, and we'd have perished. And yet he said, no, hurl me into that destruction that's coming your way. That was the word of the Lord, and that's what happened on the cross. It became the sacrifice that appeased God's wrath. It says this in Romans 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are words that should bring wonder to our soul, that God did that for us. And we see it graphically demonstrated here in this story of Jonah. God's mercy had mercy on these sailors. And look at their gratitude in verse 16. It says, Then the men, they feared the Lord exceedingly. They see His power and His justice, and they offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. They see that the Word of God, in that there is justice, but there's also mercy. He saved them through that. And all they could do, they make vows. All they can do then is say, we give our lives back to you because we had considered them gone. Give their lives back to the Lord. And think about this. Think about the irony of reading this account if you were a Hebrew back at that time. Because guess what's happened? They are just a few years away from going into destruction from the Assyrians and being taken off and judged. They're a backslidden nation. And they're reading this account of Jonah. He's, he's the one, the Hebrew, the prophet. He's running from God, disobedient, unwilling to pray, backslidden. And yet, here's these pagan Phoenician sailors that once they get light, they pray to God, offer sacrifices to Him, make vows of commitment and obedience to Him. They dedicate their lives to serve Him in obedience. That had to convict those people because they considered the pagans to be worse than worthless. Right? So let's just ask here we look through this most the chapter 1 the only thing we left out was verse 17 who is the hero and the outstanding character of this story is it Jonah is it the sailor is it the captain of the ship who's the hero of this story if you want to say that outstanding character it's God God stands out he's the one that's in control it begins with his sovereign moral rule he says listen i have a right to command prophets, men nations and the seas when i say it has to happen i expect obedience jonah was expected to obey the assyrians when jonah comes they're expected to obey and we're expected to obey the sovereign god of the universe so we're all subject to him aren't we the more ruler of this universe because if we don't obey like jonah we can have a storm come hurled our way that's what can happen God's not going to let us ride very comfortably on our ship that's bound for Tarshish. That's not what he's going to do. Because there's the title of my message. God is not to be messed with. That's what we should see out of all this, is he? He's really not. But really, in in reality, though, that violent storm that seems like, wow, who would want to deal with that? I wouldn't want to have to deal with that. But actually, within that is God's mercy, is it not? Because look, think about it. At one point in this story everybody involved in this story are facing judgment Nineveh is, Jonah is, the sailors are but by the time you get to the end of this to chapter four, everybody's saved so it's showing God's compassion, His mercy, and His patience and relentless pursuit of people to bring them to the point of salvation and think about what we just read about with these sailors, God in His great wisdom Think about this. He used Jonah's punishment, the storm and him being thrown into the sea, as the means, his punishment was used as the means to save these Phoenician sailors. You know, these guys think they're off just making a routine trip from Joppa to Tarshish, and instead, they get something they never planned on. God broke into their lives too, because they experienced the awesome power, majesty, holiness, and the great mercy of the God of heaven. That's what these guys experienced. Their eyes were opened. And they realized, hey, our gods are powerless. Didn't do a thing for us. Nothing changed. And they see now this God of heaven and earth, the one that made the lands and the sea, he is the true and living God. He saved them. And they worshiped and feared him as a result. So God used Jonah's punishment for their salvation. And that's where we should just be in awe of God. Who could write a story like this but God? And so Paul wrote this in Romans. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. Praise God. That's the way he is. So if you're in the midst of a storm today in your life, you have to understand that God is in control. If it's because of disobedience and rebellion, the answer then is to repent. so we can't thumb our nose at god because if we do his anger it was unleashed on jonah wasn't it came in the form of that wind he didn't do that to destroy jonah or the sailors what was he after with both of them to produce fear and faithfulness in them a healthy respect of his holiness and so hebrews twelve tells us this all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness and i would say finally let the picture of the gospel that we see here in this first chapter that came to those phoenician sailors let it grip your heart with what god's done see that there's unsaved people like those guys that are terrified at the judgment that's coming and they're calling on their gods in vain aren't they i mean they got the catholics and the muslims that's what they're doing isn't it they believe in hell both groups do and they're praying and saying their rosaries and on their knees on their blankets three times a day whatever all they're doing and it's all in vain is it not and so we need to see that And hey let's not be asleep and not be able to pray and be in disobedience we need to be willing to help these people because we have the answer don't we We know the only true and living God. And so let's not be guilty of that, living in disobedience, asleep, and not able to pray. Let's arise and go. Let's be like Abraham. Let's be like the Lord Jesus Christ and share the good news of the gospel, that he's a sacrifice for the sins of the people in this world, and he will calm that raging sea that's in their hearts. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, thank you, Lord, for this word that you've given us today out of the book of Jonah that even though he doesn't have much prophecy, Lord, yet he speaks to our hearts. And you speak to our hearts through this story of his life and what's been experienced here, Lord. And I ask that you'll give all of us a heart that we want to obey you, Lord, and and will willingly obey even if we don't always understand why you're asking us to do what you're asking us to do but ask you to give us willing and obedient hearts and also hearts lord that are willing to share the gospel with the lost hearts of compassion that see their need that see their end and we're willing to share the good news that we've experienced of the life and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that will calm that storm and give them that peace that can only come from you I just ask that you'll do that for all of us here and make us faithful witnesses to you lord to your glory, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.